Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Desi Condition. I'm Tanushri, and today I wanted to talk about something that brown kids are really not taught to talk about. You know, things like aspirations, motivation, emotionality. These are all parts of the human condition that are ignored in typical Desi culture, and it's actually partly where the name of this podcast came from, just in case I haven't explained that before. I guess after two seasons is a good time to start doing that, right? Anyways. It feels kind of unnatural to do things like quit your 9-to-5 job and jump headfirst into a new risky pursuit just to follow your passion, but it's actually a very normal part of the human condition. My guest today is Anish Mitra, who I met recently at a fundraiser for Sapna NYC, where he's also a board member. Anish is here to talk about his decision to leave a job in finance to pursue comedy, the way it interferes with Desi Hunger, uh, perceptions of success, and towards the end, we'll talk about how a recent week-long retreat at the Hoffman Institute changed his life. Hi, Anish. Hey, hey. What's up? What's going on? Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Anish Mitra, and yes, I'm the clown who <laughs> decided to quit a job in finance and pursue my passion for making others laugh. I love that. Tell us what you're up to right now. Yeah, great question. I uh, <laughs> I left Goldman Sachs at the end of July of this year, and I was there for seven years. So I joined in 2012. I graduated from college in 2010. I went to Brown University and studied economics. And I had already been doing stand-up comedy for the better part of the last five years. So I was playing double dutch kind of. I had one foot in stand-up and I was doing that pretty seriously. And I had another foot at Goldman where I was a vice president focusing on their corporate learning group. So I ran all the training programs for a lot of their, their groups. And I felt like I had been given a parachute, to be honest with you. They were doing a restructuring, and I had the option of moving around or taking another job in a different department. And I told myself, you know what, I'm 31, single, no kids. I have a mom and a dad here. That's pretty much about it. So why not just take this opportunity to actually do what I want to do? And if it doesn't work out, well, I'll just go back to some of these banks or reserve myself to a life of working for the men. Mm-hmm. But I've been... Over the last few months, I've been working on myself, not to, you know, not to sound like an influencer, but I've been focusing on just planning and strategizing for 2020 and trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to focus on when, you know, one of the things I took for granted working at a big bank was you have someone every day telling you exactly what to do. So once you leave that environment, you almost feel like a gorilla that's been taken out of the zoo and put back in the jungle, right? You're like, oh my God, I, I want to do all these mm-hmm. things, but everything's so scary. It kind of feels like being an infant in this world, right? It's like yeah. you're just starting over, trying to figure figure out who you are even and what you want. Yeah, almost feels like, you know, it even feels funny telling my parents about this stuff and I'm just like freaking out, like, I don't know, like, should I move to LA? Like, I don't have any friends there, blah, blah. And like my mom who moved here from Calcutta with a new husband and had zero friends here was just like looks at me and she's like, you're an idiot. Um, but it's been great. I, yeah, I heard you mention I just did the Hoffman process in California for a week, which a friend recommended to me, an entrepreneur friend, and that's been great. And I'm focusing on working on my stand-up, working on my story, and working on my writing. Those are the things that I loved doing when I was a kid, when I was in school, when I was in college. And I want to figure out a way to get back to that and make that a real business. Yeah. So you've been working on the surprise show. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the surprise show, which all of you should come out to if you're in New York or even if you're not in New York, fly in. It's that good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have Mm -hmm. a really, really good friend in the comedy world named Sachin Bonsal. He's a little bit older than me. He's a lawyer. Him and I met him and I met before I even started doing comedy. In a way, he actually got me into it because he invited me to the Stand Comedy Club back in 2014 to come see a show. I show up to the show and I realize I'm not about to see Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock. He was on the stage and he was performing along with all these other amateur comedians. And that just opened my mind up. I was like, oh my God, Like you don't have to be one of these big people to perform. All these people are performing every single day. There's an entire scene. So that's when the bubbling started happening. I was like, you know what, maybe I should get into it. What I realized pretty quickly was it's very difficult to get on stage in New York unless 
you're bringing out 20 people to these venues and they put you on stage. And I realized I was going to run out of friends pretty closely because I don't have friends that are going to pay 100 bucks to see me every single week. Uh, one day I'll get to that point maybe. But we decided to start our own show. So we started the surprise show. It's built on three main pillars, diversity, access, and excellence. We noticed a lot of the lineups were just different Jewish people talking about different things, uh, not very diverse. So we wanted to create something that was diverse, would have other perspectives, would still be excellent. So it's still the same quality as if you were to go to a Broadway show and give people access to it. So it's $20, no drink minimums. And so far, it's been going great. We've worked with some of my idols, some of the biggest names in the industry. Jim Gaffigan is a big repeat person. He follows me on Instagram. He's amazing. He's got five kids. I don't know how he does it. Uh, we worked with Nikki Glazer recently, Colin Quinn. And uh, one of the biggest highlights was we had Hassan Minaj, uh, Hassan Bai, come through I think two years ago at this point, or maybe three years ago, right before he did the big White House Correspondence Center yeah. speech, that kind of put him on the map. So we need to talk about this a little more for one second. Yeah, yeah, not to, not to glaze past it. Uh, <laughs> What's <laughs> yeah, he like in real life? Um, he's really cool. He's super humble. He came by, and we, we've hung out many times after this too, but he... Many times? Uh, like, like more than once? More than once, I would say, is many. You know, more he's, than twice. he's big now. We, we would see him at the cellar just to, like, catch up and hang out, and we'd talk. He's, he's a really he's a funny guy. Is he, it five or more? I need, like, more information. It's, it's less than five or more, like, we'd be friends. We'd be, okay. like, good friends. He'd be here right now next to me. We'd be doing oh the show God. together. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> but that's the thing about him. He's, okay. at least when I met him two years ago, I don't know if he's changed at all, but super approachable guy, you know, came in. I hadn't met him before. Sachin actually knew someone who knew him really well, so he, Sachin was the one that got him to come by and do mm. it. You dropped in on, on our show. That night we had already had, we had Todd Barry come in and Jim Gaffigan come by. So we already had, you know, two huge drop-ins. And then he comes in, you know, I, I had no idea he was even going to show up. So I go to the door, you know, I, I was hosting. So I, you know, generally I figure out, okay, who's coming in? Who am I going to put on? Blah, blah, blah. I go to the door, I open the door and I see the human version of Bambi looking at me and I'm like, oh my God, this is... Hassan Minhaj mm -hmm. and I'm looking mm -hmm. at him he's looking at me eyes. <laughs> and I'm like oh my god like what does he want and, <laughs> and uh, what does he come for <laughs> and you know we just start talking he's like hey what's going on man uh, I heard you guys got a show going on I was like yeah yeah we do uh, but you know we ended up putting him on he obviously did great and you know we've been uh, we haven't worked together since because he's been so busy with you know this little thing he's doing on Netflix yeah. uh, but he's cool. a great guy super humble and a lot of the people I've met uh, you know, Nikki Glazer, kind of the same thing, you know, very easy to work with, very humble. Many of these folks are, at least I've seen with comedians, you know, I haven't interacted with like movie stars or anything like that, but a lot of the comedians are just super humble, always trying to work, always trying to, to meet new people. So it's been great. Cool. I love that. Um, is any of this what you had envisioned for yourself when you were a kid? No. What were kid Anisha's no. aspirations? I wanted all the things that I didn't have. So I knew I wanted to be really rich. I wanted to be married to a beautiful person. And I also wanted tons of free time. So now I have tons of free time. <laughs> but I had no idea. You know, I wasn't one of those kids that was like, I always want to be a doctor. Or I want to be a surgeon. Or I want to okay. be a lawyer. Or I want to be president. Or I want to start my own company and blah, blah, blah. I just knew what I really liked, and I really liked writing. I liked public speaking. I did a lot of model UN in high school. I like traveling. I like talking. Those are the things I really like to do. And for a while, I thought maybe law school would make a lot of sense. But then mm. I I played a lot of poker in college because my parents didn't give me any money for anything <laughs> other than textbooks. Of course. And this is like I, I don't know if you have you know. Gen Z people listening, but you know, textbooks are these things that you'd have to actually go buy physically at these things called mm -hmm. bookstores. No downloadable <laughs> PDFs. So uh, you know, I, I think like at the time I went to college, 2006 to 2010, and at the, I remember in like 08 or 09, people were like, you know, instead of going to the bookstore and like buying a textbook for 300, dollars you can get it on Amazon for like 30 bucks, and that was like the biggest revelation in the world. But uh, 
I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I, I, I remember. Uh, I think your point is that I, you are old and you used textbooks. Yes, I'm. I'm old. I know what textbooks <laughs> are. I probably, you know, still have some of those textbooks and need to get them on Amazon. But I don't have money for really anything other than buying books and right. buying food. Yes. So I play a lot of poker, and a lot. I was an economics major. A lot of the other guys I played with, they were all economics majors too, and athletes as well. And you know, we'd all hang out and, and have a good time. By the time I was a senior. I didn't really know what I was going to end up doing. And I talked to one of my buddies who I was playing poker with. And I was like, what'd you do all summer? And he, you know, I normally my summers would be like, I'd apply to work at like some store in the mall, like Hollister or Express, you know, because I grew up in Long Island. I'd get rejected and then I'd go smoke hookah with my buddies in Queens pretty much every weekend or every day. <laughs> so my summers were excellent. And I asked him what he did, and he was like, oh, you know, I worked at this place called Lehman Brothers, and they paid me $10,000 to update PowerPoint presentations. So after I heard that, I threw my LSAT book in the recycling bin, and I was like, i got to get one of these jobs. Like, they're paying all this money. So you've abandoned the plan before. Oh, yeah. I've definitely abandoned the plan for uh, for cash. And I kind of ended up working as an investment banker and ended up in this world of finance for a long time, which... I think was great because it gave me independence, which is something I've always wanted, and that's a big value of mine. Um, you know, I'm an only child. I grew up very lonely. Oftentimes, I'd have to figure things out. My general strategy is, especially when I'm stressed, is to kind of shut down, shut other people out, figure it out myself, which isn't a great thing, and I'm learning how to not do that anymore as my default option. But you know, I was always very, very focused on being independent and not living off my parents or, you know, not having to depend on them for anything. So I thought this was a great way to do that. And I can just figure it out later. I knew I wasn't going to be like a banker the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But I never sat down and said, you know what, like, you got to, you know, move to LA and do this, or you got to live in a five bedroom apartment in Brooklyn and get on stage every night until you make it. Um, But you know, I'm glad it's been a good nine-year run. I've learned a lot about myself. I've done somewhat well there. I have all these interesting experiences, and now I'm ready to see, you know, what I can do elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So what's the turning point at which you realized that you needed to get out of there slash pursue comedy? Uh, I don't know. And I it think was... that happened at two different points of your life, actually. Yeah. Pursuing comedy and then leaving finance. It's, you know, it's it just weird. Like, I had never worked in a way. It's going to sound weird, but I had never worked. Mm-hmm. Ever until I started working in investment banking, okay. which is kind of like, I, I mean, I can't even think of a way to describe it. It's almost like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like being out of- Oh, yeah, of, Wilson. Oh, yeah, Wilson. Mm-hmm. Like, that was like one of the best movies ever. Mm-hmm. My mom loves that movie. It's really? like- That's so random. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, trust me, the analogy will get there in two seconds. The- okay. Like when he's out there in the wild, he's not eating, right? He has he's basically forgotten what it's like to eat like a real meal. It's like taking someone, you know, not having worked for so long and then being thrust into the world of Wall Street it was almost like not having food and then suddenly tomorrow I'm in a buffet at Vegas, like the nicest buffet ever. And it's almost like you're getting bombarded with random things. You have no idea what's going on. You haven't developed those habits. And you're also with people whose parents have worked on Wall Street or whose dad is the head of the group that you're working in, right? Mm. They've been groomed for this. So a lot of those first few years were really big struggles. I was working 100 hours a week. My health care just went out the window. You know, I was eating pizza every night and, you know, you get $25 for food. So I was going crazy just ordering everything. It felt like I I was handling too much too quick. And it took a while to like get used to it. You're talking differently. You're saying, you know, these weird words that you wouldn't normally say. It's like a different language. Okay. So it took me a while to realize, because in the beginning, you know, I always wanted to do a good job. So in the beginning, I was like, all right, this isn't, this is something you got to learn. This is something you got to get good at. Um, Of course, it's for you. You just got to figure out how to make it for you. It wasn't until like five years in that I realized all this like mergers and acquisitions, advising and investing, it's really not for me. It's interesting, but just because something's interesting doesn't mean it's something you should be doing for 100 hours a week. Oh, yeah, I can relate so hard. Um, I mean, yeah, I feel that way about engineering, right? Like I love physics. I love mechanics. I love math. But just because I like it doesn't mean I should be like engineering for like 40 to 60, 70 hours a week, whatever it is that I was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, same story. I just realized like I love the subject, but I got to get out of there. A lot of it is also about image. I felt like I had to have this image of someone who was still doing something with their life. Yeah. Yeah. 
because I went to Brown. I didn't go to law school or med school, so I had to do something that was like equally as cool. And working in finance, at least my parents knew what that was. And more importantly, they could tell other people and they would know what that was. I, I just I felt like I had to uphold this image for yes. a while, too. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was all the wrong things motivating me. And I didn't have – it's tough when all your friends are doing that stuff, too. So then all my friends in New York – so I was living in Manhattan. All my friends in New York who I went to school with I, – I don't really hang out with anyone I went to high school with. So most of my friends are all people I went to school with. And a lot of those people in New York were all in consulting or finance or doing one of these things. And, you know, of course, when you meet up with people, they tell you they love it and they're having a great time. So you you never get the truth anywhere. Deep down, everyone kind of hates it. And I hated it deep down. And I think it took me a while to get the maturity to just be like, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm going to step away from this and I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And having comedy in... Like to your point about the first time I left, which was in 2014, 2015, five years in, having comedy as something that I could kind of work towards and build gave me the strength I needed to say, you know what, I don't want to do this investment banking stuff anymore. I'm going to step away from it. I still need to pay rent, so I'll figure out some other job that I can do at Goldman or wherever, but I'm going to do these two things and try to make it work. That's a lot of hours. Yeah. I've, I kind of figured I would always be – you don't notice the hours sometimes when you're doing stuff that you actually care about doing. That's true. Of course, you get stressed and it's still a physical toll on your body. But I figured if I'm going to be working 100 hours a week anyway, I'd rather spend 20 of those hours on stuff that I actually like and care about than 100% of those hours on stuff that's just killing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's it like now that you've left Goldman? What's your day-to-day like? Oh, man. It's a day it's, in the life of Anish Mitra. It's been crazy. In the beginning, so I left at the end of July. And for the next two weeks, I think I was just partying and taking all the vacation that I never took. I didn't take any vacation this year. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the backstory is I found out in May that there was going to be a restructuring. Mm-hmm. So I had two months to prepare and kind of figure out, okay, what am I going to do after July? What's my life going to be like? I didn't do any of that, and uh, I just decided to take some time off and go crazy a little bit with my friends, do some traveling. I had some weddings, blah, blah, blah. I was doing a lot of that stuff, but now I'm in a much better place because you know, I gave up drinking for a long time. I just had 100 days. I just knew I needed to get focused, and I came back from California. I was in LA doing the Hoffman thing, so now I'm just trying to figure out you know, what are the two or three projects that I want to work on for 2020? The first one, we're doing a great job with the surprise show. We've been featured in Brown Girl Magazine, the New York Post, Time Out New York. I want to get that to, you know, basically a bigger level. I think it's a great show. You know, we've been validated by so many big artists. It's a fun time. It really is, I think, the best deal in the city aside from, you know, maybe Halal Guys. So, I want to get that to be bigger, and it's just fun to keep working on that with my boy Sachin and and you know do what we love doing. And then even my stand-up, I want to drop an album. So I'm working on getting up. I have about 30 minutes of good material that I do at either conferences or Bongo Shyamalan, places like that. You performed at Bongo Shyamalan? Yeah. I, I've been, I love performing there. I love, I love the fact that comedy took me back there. I didn't go there for a long time when I was yeah. little because my mom would be like, come, come. Like, I remember when I was really little, my mom would, and I'm sure a lot of people can identify with this, she'd be like, you know, you have to go. You have to learn about the culture, your yeah. Bengali culture. <laughs> yeah. You have to learn about Rabindranath Tagore. No, I've been avoiding it because I feel like <laughs> my parents want me to go so they can find me a husband there. So I remember my mom never making a fuss about it when I was in college. And then after I started working, she'd be like, well, Bongo Shaman's happening in mm. New York. Do you want to come? And I'd be like, no, why would I want to go? And she'd be like, <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of girls that go and blah, blah, blah. And this person's daughter is going to be there. So, it, you know, it's of course, it always comes full circle. Multi Bunga Shaman, very multi-purpose event. Uh, <laughs> yeah. serves, serves a lot of different purposes for different people <laughs> at any at any point in life. Um, but it's been great to go back. I I performed in the Bay Area three years ago at the opening ceremony for five minutes in front of I think it was a few thousand people. And since then, they've been calling you back to do shows there or do stuff. Also, oh, it's been a few years that you've been doing yeah, this. It's been fun. I nice. love it. Uh, we need more community yeah yeah it's uh i i 
realized like I, I kind of also fell in love with being Bengali again, which is kind of cool because in the beginning it just felt like knowing how to speak Bangla mm-hmm. felt like a superpower that no one really needed or that like I didn't know where to use because I was always mm-hmm. with, you know, when I was seven years old, we moved out of Queens and we moved to Long Island. So I was around a bunch of people named Brandon, Kevin and Christina. Right. Yeah. And they, so you can't even like talk shit about anyone. No, like, <laughs> you can't. People just think you're crazy. You're right. speaking Bangla to yourself. Yeah. Um, it was only useful with my parents. Like, we'd talk shit about people on the subway. Yeah. It's the only really useful, like, (laughs) aspect of knowing another language is, like, just talk shit in front of other people. Yeah. And so for a long time, I was like, oh, like, you know, I'm bilingual, but, like, am I even really? I can't even use this. You can't use it at work. But I got myself out of that that mind space, um, you know, once I started going back and realizing, you know, there is, like, a huge community of people. You just have to meet them. Yeah. And... It's great to know Bangla. I mean, it, it's it's helped me so much, even even with writing jokes. You know, yeah. I do jokes in Bangla. You think about things in Bangla. Do you write jokes in Bangla? Yeah, I have some oh Bangla my jokes. God. Yeah, I have jokes about top bores and you know <laughs> getting hit. And I, I I like in Bangla that the word uh, for eating or like that you've eaten, like I'm ikechi. Mm-hmm. You can use that word also for getting hit, like I'm like the top bore <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So that makes an appearance in some of my jokes. Um, I love it. I want to check it out. How do we find? How do we find more of your Bangla humor? Oh, check check me out on YouTube. I'm gonna put up a video of I did 30 minutes of material in Baltimore this last summer, which okay. was awesome. Like 80 or 90 people came out to see it. Was, it was that Bangla Shyamalan? Yeah, yeah, cool. for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, I wasn't doing this at you know <laughs> <laughs> at the bar across the street for the white people. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's been great to kind of dive into that again and, and have that be I, I think to go back to your original question, like what's my life been like after Goldman, it's yes. when you're working eighty hours a week, ninety hours a week, you're focusing on like all these deadlines you have to hit and the projects and these meetings and being this person that you want to be at work, you kinda of lose sight of who you are a little bit, or maybe a lot of it. And getting back to my headspace of like, all right, well, what are my values? What do I really want to do? How can I make those things happen for myself in a productive way that makes money? Those are all really hard questions. And if you haven't spent, you know, people spend their whole lives trying to figure those questions out. I'd spent three weeks and I was going crazy. Like, oh my God, I don't have it all figured out. I think where I'm at now, it's taken a while, but I'm comfortable not knowing the answers, but I'm also comfortable going into this uncertainty because I'm confident in myself and that I can figure it out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you've been sober 100 days? Yeah. I'm going to detour yes. for a second into that. Yes, I that's have. That's fascinating. Something I never thought I would say. I mean, and look, just to be clear like, for the listeners, it's not like the judge ordered me to do this. You know, okay. there wasn't. Yeah. And obviously, you know, people have their own journeys and struggles with alcohol and, and other substances. I have plenty of friends who've gone through things like this and, and folks that I know. So I don't take it lightly, but I did notice myself just using it for the wrong reasons as okay. a distraction. It, it's no coincidence that, you know, during during the summer, during July, I had to deal with all these questions about, okay, what are you going to do with your life? And when you're Daisy, like those questions hit a hundred million times harder, I think, than, you know, if... And I'm not judging. I'm just saying, like, when you have, when you're an only child and your parents are asking you every single day, mm-hmm. you look around. All your other Desi friends are like graduating from business school or getting promoted or just bought, like putting a down payment on a house, and they have like babies now. Uh, it hits you a lot harder, and it's no coincidence that while all that was happening, oh, and at the time my girlfriend broke up with me, mm. so all this is happening. It's no coincidence that I was spending a lot more time drinking White Claws and ordering vodka sodas and just looking for excuses to go out and party and distract myself. So I decided, you know, if you don't turn this off now, it's not going to turn off by itself. And I started with a buddy of mine. He bet me I couldn't go 100 days without drinking back in September. So we went to Vegas like one last time and then we came back and it's been great. I might even keep it going till my birthday in March. That's awesome. I highly recommend it. I think I'll go back to it when I know I'm using it for the right reasons. Like it's something that's coming from a place of joy and not because I don't want to think about what I'm going to do for the next 10 years of my life. Cool. I do miss it though. Going back to uh, post-Goldman life, what were the first few days like leaving Goldman? 
Oh, amazing. I felt like, I don't know what it's like to leave prison, but I feel like it felt that way. Like I, it was, I still remember, you know, the building I worked in downtown Manhattan. I worked in Jersey city and downtown Manhattan, but I was in downtown Manhattan the last day. And I, you know, it's a huge building. It kind of is like a prison complex in a way. Um, but I had to give back my ID and my Blackberry or like, you know, my, like my phone and I was joking around with my friends. I was like, yeah, you know, I just turned in my gun and my badge. I'm done. <laughs> I'm finished. Mm-hmm. Off the force. And it was. And remember, this is the summer. So I walked out and the sun was shining and I felt like it was only shining for me. <laughs> and I went right to a bar and I, I, we had drinks for me. Like my whole group came out and it felt amazing. I felt liberated. I felt like I was a whole new person and I was going to go take over the world. And that feeling lasted about 36 hours. And then, remember, I was still living at home. Oh, that's so brief. Yeah, oh, it, it is brief. I woke up in my, my bedroom at my parents' house and I was just like, wow, there's like no one telling me what to do. You know, there's no one cares mm-hmm. if I wake up or not. No one's asking me for things. No one's worried about if I'm going to finish something. Yeah. No one wants to catch up with me and ask me about my career. So it felt lonely. And it felt, and you know, all your, when you're unemployed or, or when you're not working, I should say, because, you know, I was on severance for five months. When you're not working, it just feels almost like you don't exist to a certain degree. And that's kind of how I felt for a while. So I was looking for things to do. And I had a lot of comedy stuff. I, uh, I got invited to Houston to do the Trill Comedy Festival down there, mm-hmm. and I had a bunch of shows lined up, so I was preparing for that, and we were still doing the surprise show, and I had a bunch of other comedy gigs in the city. I perform at you know clubs all over the city, so I still had stuff that I was focusing on, mm-hmm. but it just felt like – it almost felt like being full on snacks – in a way, like when okay. you, I like that you know, like when, like, you know, you've had a whole day of gorging on like brownies and chips and milkshakes. So you're full, but you feel full for the wrong reasons. Like the entree wasn't there, you know, you don't feel like yourself. Yeah. And I was looking for like a salad or something, you know, something healthy, some healthy way to live. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. But now I feel like I'm in a better position to, to actually work on that and focus on that. Mm-hmm. So you leave Goldman. Uh-huh. Your head's a jumble. You've got a lot of stuff to do. Head and body. Yes. <laughs> and mind. So you start trying to find structure in your life. Mm-hmm. Then what? So I would say after after October. So October, first week of October, I had to go to Houston. I performed at the Trail Comedy Festival for 20 minutes. I did a bunch of other shows, hung out with a lot of the comedians down there. I think, funny enough, I think Dave Chappelle actually came down a week later to do some stuff, so I probably shouldn't have left. Mm-hmm. But it was super fun, super validating. So it's, it's I perform mostly in New York, in New York City, and Bungo Shaman is actually the only times I've kind of gone out and performed mm-hmm. for a while outside of New York. So it was cool to perform for you know regular people in another area and kind of see the stuff hit. So it was motivating. I felt good coming back, but I didn't have anything else really lined up aside mm-hmm. from the surprise show. Yeah, so show how do you start to build a structure? You know, you, you kind of just start from scratch in a way. You know, I told myself what's important to you. So my health is important to me. So I started to figure out, okay, when am I going to work out? Like even simple stuff like that. So I, I'm part of a boxing gym in New York, uh, in Manhattan. And I told myself, you're going to go four days a week and you're going to go in the mornings. So that would force me to get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. The other thing is just, you know, I love writing and no matter what I do, whether it's posting memes or posting jokes or working on a show, all of that is going to come from just writing, right? You can kind of figure out – you make the raw material, like you mine the coal and you figure out later if you're going to use it for heating or pressurizing it into diamonds, whatever it is. So I needed to figure out, okay, what's your work routine? Like seeing things that you previously saw as hobbies, you need to start seeing those things as work. And that was like a big mental shift. Like sitting down and writing for an hour a day, I used to think of it as like a nice kind of like a cherry on top. Like, oh, like you worked at Goldman, you did all the stuff, you paid your rent, and now you get to write for an hour. If you don't, it's not a big deal. Mm, yeah. I had to shift my mindset to thinking like if you don't write for an hour, it is a big deal. It's the same as not submitting a project on time or it's the same as showing up 30 minutes late to a 30-minute meeting. Um, <laughs> so I decided to figure out, okay, I'm going to work out. I'm going to come back. I'm going to write. I'm going to do those two things kind of treat my day as a checklist, right? You did the workout, you did the writing. Then it was more about like performing and like kind of planning and like long-term stuff. So like you did the stuff you need to do today. What are you going to, what's your life going to look like a year from now, right? 
Um, so working on longer term projects. So I have a buddy who's out in LA. We've worked together for on a few things. We're working on a show together. So it's like, okay, what have I done on that? Um, but yeah, I can get the idea. Like the general idea is like figuring out, okay, how do I satisfy the now? Mm-hmm. How do I satisfy like the medium term? And then how do I satisfy the long term? Mm-hmm. You know, thankfully I, I have severance from Goldman, but that's obviously a very short term thing. I got to figure out how to make, you know, real money to support myself. So a lot of what I'm trying to figure out is, okay, well, what do I do for that? Do I get another job? Maybe it's in the, in a writing field. Do I do freelancing? So I've been working on the freelancing stuff a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it also kind of seems like you're trying to figure out how to, like you have something to say and you're trying to figure out how to yeah. be heard. I feel that way about, so I left my job. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but just to recap real quick, I used to work as a full-time mechanical engineer. Yay! And then um, I stopped. <laughs> but one of the first things I did actually was start this podcast. And so just by like having a podcast to start, it was like nice meeting people and had to like make schedules and like, just like you said, like having a yeah. checklist and just by doing that, like everything else around me kind of started to fall into place a little bit more. I won't say that I still not that I know what I'm doing because I very much don't. Um, but I do feel like I have at least more structure in my day to day. Hey, well, look, you're nice. You look like you're doing just fine to me. Um, I'm in your apartment right now. You know, for the listeners, things are in place. <laughs> there is furniture here. <laughs> things are clean. Having I, I think I remember reading that really popular book on habits with the yellow cover. I forget hmm. the name of it. Um, Everyone knows it's got that yellow cover though. Yeah, really nice I know I, it's not coming to me right now. Okay. Yes. I think it's like the principles of habit or something like that. But I remember one thing really stuck out to me from that book, keystone behaviors. Okay. So no matter what, just sticking with the keystone behaviors. And a lot of those things are going to be like working out or some routine thing that you do every day. And I, I do read a lot. And, and the okay. one, the one common thread I always see and shouldn't be surprised anyone is having those routine things. I think the mental challenge for me was I'm, I can be very judgmental and judging like, well, all you did was write for 30 minutes. You didn't, so judgmental towards yourself. Yeah. Like you didn't make any money. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't get like green light for a show. So it was all worthless. Like getting away from that mindset and just being confident that, no, this is building up to something as long as I do it consistently. It's mm-hmm. kind of like working out. Like you don't lose 10 pounds, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, after the first spin class you do, but right. I feel like you should. seems like oh, cruelty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely should they should that's what they got to figure out next yeah <laughs> you know we don't need self-driving cars so your um keystones working out working on comedy mm-hmm. what else have you got health, health career and then mind i think would be the last one i yeah. do think and maybe now like mental health in the workplace and mental health in general and obviously with podcasts like yours this is becoming more of a real issue. I do think it fell into the category, especially in our community of, you know, if you were to tell, I'll just use my parents as an example. I don't want to generalize, but you know, if I were to have told my parents a few years ago, you know, I just don't feel mentally ready to do something or I feel depressed. They'll just be like, Oh, well just go take a nice warm shower and you'll be fine. Or, (laughs) Oh, I made food. Like come downstairs. I made chicken. Your favorite. Like just have that. You'll feel fine. (laughs) Brushing off mental health issues as something as simple as being hungry or some physical need. I do think that trend is going away. Yeah. But actively working on your mind in the form of checking in with yourself, meditating, finding what works for you, I think is important, especially, you know, I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. You live in some of these high pressure environments where things are always moving hundred miles an hour and you're looking around and everyone else is running the race at the same speed as you. You look ahead, the people you like are lapping you. It's going to create some, some issues for yourself and you need yeah. to know how to deal with those and just doing stuff on the surface isn't going to help. You got to go deep. Yeah. So you're looking around, everyone's having babies and getting married and getting promoted and everything. Running marathons. Yeah, running <laughs> running marathons, um, skydiving, I don't know, whatever it is people do these days. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm skydiving. I just jumped off a, a cliff that gave me health care and a 401k. I mean, what's, right. what's more dangerous than that? It does seem wild. How do you find the motivation to keep working or start working on something new? Thankfully, I'm motivated by my mind and heart, not by my stomach in the sense that right now I've, I have some savings. I'm living with my parents. So, I, you know, Desi parents, Bengali parents, there's always food, too much food. Mm-hmm. Mom, if you're listening, I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. I've eaten. 
but I'm always motivated in theory. I've always been a very motivated person. I think everyone is motivated to a certain degree. They're motivated to do things that they love. I think the challenge is figuring out how do you make that sustainable, right? How do you make a living out of it? The challenge that I had to get over was just not being scatterbrained. I think the trap a lot of folks fall into and you know, maybe folks like me who have all these different interests, what do you focus on? What are the things you actually do? Like I love stand-up, but I want to write a book. I also am talking to a buddy about writing a show. I have business interests too. You know, you can't do everything, right? I almost imagine everyone's mind kind of like a shopping mall and time is your currency and you have all these different stores, which are your interests, things that you want to do. And they all want your money. And if you're always paralyzed about where you're going to make a decision, what's going to happen is the mall's going to close. You're not going to spend any of your money and you're going to be frustrated. And then all the store owners are going to be frustrated, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to pick like one or two things. The key to doing that, I think, is also realizing time isn't running out. I think when I was in my head working all the time, I would always have this idea in my head that like, oh my God, time's running out. Looking around all those people having babies and doing things almost reinforces that. I think where I ended up mentally and where I am now is you can always do the things you want to do. You just need to trust that they'll happen as long as you continue to work towards them. And my focus now is, you know, I'm super motivated to just get myself out there, get my writing out there and just have things that, you know, that I can show for myself, right? So having a comedy album, that's that's a big thing that I can then use to either tour, do colleges, perform. And I want to work on a show with my buddy because that's also another thing that can lead to other opportunities. So I'm a big fan of keeping options open and creating doors and opening doors. So I want to focus on things that are going to not only showcase, you know, my passions and, and what I'm good at, but open doors in the future. Mm-hmm. Time is not running out mm-hmm. and focus on what you and others love about you. Yeah. I mean, look, the other thing too, I, I don't know how, how you deal with this, but maybe being an only child was part of this. I've never really been that okay with opening up to other people. I mean, it sounds weird for a comedian to say, but it's easy to do it on stage in front of a hundred people. But personally, if I'm dealing with something or if there's a challenge, whether it's work related or even personal, I'm not the type of person that's just going to call someone on the phone and be like, Hey, like I had a rough day. Can we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Coming to terms with the fact that that's like super okay to do, but more importantly, like you should do that. Your friends are always watching, your family's always watching. They know things about you that, or they see you do things that you're not gonna be able to to know. It's like yeah, you know, that's a good point. I've always been like, I think I'm kind of like you in this regard that I've always been a little bit fascinated by public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always like done well with presentations. I perform well. Like when I got on stage, I do like way better than I like if I'm practicing. Yeah, you did a great job hosting the Supna thing. Thank you. Yes, I did host that. Um, I usurped your role. Yeah, rightfully so. (laughs) Yeah, I got fired twice. Once from Goldman and then... (laughs) That's so sad. That sounds so tragic when you say it that way. (laughs) That's my talent. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like it's just way easier to open up publicly than it is, you know, in podcasting, than it is to speak one-on-one with someone and riff about what the hell I'm going through. It's tough to be vulnerable. Yeah. And for me, I've realized it's so much just easier to open up to other people that you trust. You know, you don't want to just grab someone on the street. Mm-hmm. But people are willing and able to help you. And I've seen it with myself. I, I do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of helping. I'm always willing to help others. So it was, I had to take a step back and say, well, why would you think other people are going to feel weird about that? Especially people that are already spending time with you anyway. You've done mentoring before? Yeah, I used to do it through a service. It was more career-oriented. So I would get linked up. It was kind of like LinkedIn meets Tinder in a way. I I would get linked up with college sophomores, juniors, seniors that wanted jobs in finance. And a, a lot of them were, you know, Asian or, you know, people of color, which was cool because it also helped with another one of my big, my big values, diversity. But I, I really loved it. It was so much fun. You know, you talk to, it's also just great being in your 30s talking to people that are young because you (laughs) oftentimes are in environments where you can talk to someone that's like 21 and it's Mm -hmm. not like super creepy or just wrong. So it's just interesting to talk to someone who's like 21 and, you know, people are just so much smarter now, I feel. Yeah. (laughs) But it was super fun. You get to really, you get to also realize when you do something like mentoring, like how much you know and how much you have to offer. That's very true. 
especially if you're someone that's always just like, oh my God, like I'm, I haven't figured anything out. Like I'm so stupid. I'm like 31. What am I doing with my life? You talk to someone who's like 21 and they have literally no idea what's going on yeah. and you get to realize how much you've learned. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's like being in the gym nonstop and never looking in the mirror. And then suddenly one day, like someone shows you a mirror and you're just like, oh my God, wow, <laughs> I have a six pack. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever get, like, this sense of panic when... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess I don't have to specify when. The answer is yes. I find that when I start panicking about what is going to happen to myself, my career, because I'm kind of, like, on the fence right now about which direction to go, I start to get tunnel vision and I start mm -hmm. hyper-focusing on the one thing. Mm -hmm. How do you know when to stop working? I feel like I don't sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I think you need to... Maybe this is too tactical, but I think priorities are important, not to sound stupid, but responsibility is very important to me. And if I make a commitment to someone or or even myself, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world. It doesn't have to be something that's going to catapult me to Netflix. It could even be I told my mom I'm going to drive her to the doctor's office at 3 p.m. So I'm going to be home so I can drive her to the doctor's office, right? When something like that is at stake, a responsibility or a commitment, I fulfill that, whether or not it's 1 in the morning or 1 p.m., but I think with other things, you know, you need to ask yourself, what is going to happen if I stay an extra hour in front of this computer? Mm -hmm. Like, what is actually going to happen? Yeah. What's likely going to happen is you're just going to stress yourself out more. You're going to get less sleep. You're probably going to end up running to the fridge and gorging on ice cream or whatever it is that you have because you're going to want to feel better. Like, you need to kind of be confident in yourself and understand, okay, it, this is why reaching out to others helps too, because you could tell yourself you're amazing all you want. Oftentimes that may or may not work. I mean, it should work, but if you're already self-critical to begin with, you're barking up the wrong tree. But if you have other people giving you their honest opinion of mm -hmm. what your best self is like, like at Hoffman, for instance, you know, we, a lot of what we were doing was just having other folks act as mirrors. And, you know, you have people that have only known you for a few days telling you things that that are accurate that must just must be true based on how they're interacting with you right once you have that idea of what your best self is and who you are you're going to be that person whether or not you hit this deadline or whether or not you know you do this work that you've piled up in your head to be like so urgent mm -hmm. so I, I think being comfortable and being confident in who you are what you have to offer I think kind of helps with that and helps with that panicking and, and once again, we're talking about panicking here, right? We're talking about like an unreasonable reaction mm -hmm. to a situation that's probably not life or death. Like obviously if there's like a life or death situation or, you know, something crazy that, that you need mm -hmm. to fulfill, like, you know, you got to buck up and do it. But, you know, I think we're probably just talking about like, you know, you wake up at 11 a.m. one day instead of 9 and you're like, oh my God, my life's a mess. What am I doing? Oh my God, that's <laughs> me as hell. Um, you know, you just got to gotta be more chill. Got to be more zen. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're just, done. I think what you're describing is self care. Yes, there we go. Yes, um, you're more eloquent than I am. <laughs> no, I think that the question I asked was actually about self care, and I didn't realize that. Yeah, what you're describing is self care and just like knowing how to make those tough decisions, trusting yourself, and addressing recurring toxic thoughts. Really. Yeah, and those things aren't going to happen. They'll happen anywhere, but. I felt like when I was working 80 hours a week or 90 hours a week at Goldman, they didn't happen often because you have people around you that are also going to tell you this is what we need to do or this is the project or let's help, let's work together on this because we're all in the same boat and we're all going to sink if it doesn't go through. When you're by yourself or when you're really charting your own destiny, those that negative inner voice is going to creep up more. So it's not unusual. It's not unusual to have that stuff happen, right? Like panicking isn't unusual. You're not weird for panicking. Mm -hmm. I think also accepting that like will help. Yeah, I think a little, at least a healthy amount of stress or panic is like is good for you, for your productivity. Yeah, having having a sense of urgency is very important. I think the thing yeah. that pisses me off the most about working collaboratively with others sometimes is, you know, they don't have that sense of, they don't want to meet deadlines. They, oh, it's all whatever, it's just a deadline, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not advocating for like, unless it's life or death, it doesn't matter. I guess what I'm advocating for is, you know, you know in your heart kind of who you are, what you have to offer. When you have those existential panics where it's like, I'm worthless, no one likes me, no one knows I exist, like those types of panics, that's when you kind of have to get yourself back to reality, ground yourself and say, no, like those are just fundamentally not true, right? But if it's something like, you know, a deadline you have to hit or something more tactical, then, you know, that's a different situation.
So what was it like breaking the news to your parents? The news to my parents when I showed up with all these suitcases and <laughs> said, hey, by the way, I'm moving in. Uh, Slash leaving finance for greater things. I, look, I think at this age, they were, I got to give it to my parents. They're super, they're super progressive okay. in, in a way about about these kinds of things. I think age is also a good point, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm at this point I'm a I'm a I'm a grown man, you know, <laughs> I'm grown. Uh, <laughs> I've been working for a while. I think they give me that's the thing with AC parents, right? You got to work for almost a decade before they give you any sort of credit for being, you know, able to make your own decisions in life. Yeah. <laughs> I I think they were okay with the and look, they've seen me do comedy. I've been doing it. It's not like I started doing comedy yesterday. They've seen me do this for four or five years. They've seen me achieve some of these milestones, like mm-hmm. headlining at Bunga Shyamalan or running the surprise show or, you know, getting past at different clubs. So I think they're okay with me taking my own direction. I don't think that stops them from panicking or being concerned. I still get texts every single day, like, what are you doing? Um, but they are interested to see me make this into something sustainable and if it doesn't get to that direction i think yeah they're gonna want me to i still get the you know so uh have you thought about law school uh Mm. it's never too late to go to business school Mm. they're still open which i don't understand i want to tell them like you know these things cost money right like are you willing to mortgage your house and sleep on like sleep in the car with me because (laughs) that's what we're gonna have to do if i decide to go to school for three years but they are very comfortable with it for now and I think for now is the key. But I'm also very comfortable with it for now, right? I need to know too. Like, can is this something that can that can end up being a real thing? But mm-hmm. I'm super motivated to try it out and do it. I think they're also just happy that I'm not in any trouble. <laughs> like I'm at the age where like now you do have family friends who've either gotten into trouble or mm-hmm. have have you know fallen into some weird situations. So I, I think they're just happy with what they have. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It yeah. Sounds <laughs> interestingly, that sounds like both very positive and negative. Maybe th- what I'm trying to say is they're not judgmental. Okay. They're kind of taking it at. They're almost doing what I should be doing in a way. They're kind of taking things as as it goes. But I do know there's a time bomb on this, and six months from now, I'm probably going to be getting questions like marriage, apartment. I was surprised. At their reaction. That's nice. They, I mean, look, in the beginning, they were like, oh, well, why don't you just get a job here, get a job there? I think they're, you got to wear them down, too. Like, they see parents are a little bit like, you know, you're just. Wear them down, yep. You, you have, like, a small hammer, and you're beating a nail that's, like, the size of, I, I don't even, like, a tree. And in the beginning, it's going to seem like you're not making progress, but after beating for years and years and years, like you start seeing less and less of the tree. <laughs> I like the analogies you make. They're very visual. I think that's fun. Yeah, I, I think the other thing with the parents too is when they can visualize what success looks like for you, they're willing to forgive some of those transition moments, right? Like if I was in med school, if I was a second year med student, I showed up at home for winter break in not having done any laundry, smelling like a hamper, coffee stains all over my clothes, not looking like I was even on track to graduate med school, they would still look at me and imagine someone in a white coat with a stethoscope dangling like it was a diamond chain, like angel wings. You know, they could still visualize what you're working towards because they, they're just familiar with that. They know what, like, Lord knows, you know, every Desi person knows what a doctor looks like. They don't know what success looks like for me as... A, a nationally touring comedian or mm. you know a well-known author or whatever that is right maybe now there are more budding faces of course you could find examples but it's just not relatable right they can't look they can't look at their facebook or call up one of their family friends and be like oh yeah your son also just got an netflix special what was that like yeah yeah so it's a little that's why they get scared the uncertainty causes this fear and that causes this regression to like oh just go back to what's familiar go to law school blah 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 because it doesn't make sense oftentimes right it costs so much money to go to these schools and not things can go wrong then too it's not like you just hit a switch and now you're set for life but they're willing to overlook a lot of those really visible and practical concerns because there's this image that's just tattooed in their head I think with visualizing success, you have to show them what that looks like, and you have to be really vocal about your accomplishments. And the other thing I've also mentally trained myself to do now is celebrate small successes, no matter how small you think they are. Because in reality, no success is too small. Nothing 
nothing is given to you. Everything's earned, right? So you should celebrate those little things. You know, I would probably a year ago or even a few months ago, if someone if someone had reshared a post of mine or if someone sent me a message, like when I, I posted recently about being sober for 100 days, I posted this this playful joke about, oh, you know, I was sober for 100 days, I lost 15 pounds and most of my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I had a description about how I got there and why I was doing it. I got so many texts and TMs and you know even phone calls from friends talking about, you know, not just, oh, wow, that's amazing, but people just sharing things with me like, oh my God, I'm going through that too. And it's just great to see you share this because I don't even know you're going through this. Like that's a huge deal. And, you know, you should use that as a motivator. And I'm definitely now trying to figure out, okay, how can I be a little bit more vulnerable? How can I share things that I would always overlook and be like, no one's going to care about this. No one's going to care. No one wants to see me struggling with anything. They want to see me shining. And you know, you get into that mode where you think everyone is like your parents and they don't want to see the bad things. They just want to see the good things. Um, so yeah, you know, they don't see things unless you show it to them and it's your job to show them what you're working towards and what you want to do. Talk to me about Hoffman. Yeah. I've been like dying to hear about this. So for folks listening, the Hoffman process is run by this group called the Hoffman Institute. It's something I knew absolutely nothing about. A friend of mine who, he's an entrepreneur, he was going through a bit of an existential crisis, I think, a year ago or two years ago, and he did it. It's a week-long thing. I think thing is actually the best way I can describe it. It's so (laughs) difficult to summarize. It's it's a week-long thing that happens either out in California or in Connecticut. They're worldwide, but the ones in the U.S. are either in Connecticut or California. And this was during Thanksgiving time, like late fall. So I was like, why would I go to Connecticut? Let's go to California. Mm -hmm. And I went out there for a week with 37 other people, and it was the best experience of my life. I just felt like a brand new person walking out of it. Mm -hmm. So what do they do there? So a lot of it is... And to be clear, it's not like a cult or anything. Like, I'm totally allowed to talk about it. It totally feels cultish, it's, by the way. <laughs> it's so not a cult. It's, like, so not a cult. Like, Soul Cycle is more of a cult okay. than, than Hoffman. Hoffman, it's basically, it attracts all people of all different ages, all different backgrounds. It's mainly meant for folks who are going through some sort of issue where they're falling into patterns and they're not able to move forward. And that could be for any area in your life. That could be for a relationship. It could be for a career. It could be for a business thing, a non-business thing, whatever it is. If you feel paralyzed and you're mentally trapped, it's an opportunity for you to be in tune with yourself, look deep in yourself and understand, okay, well, why am I always so critical or why am I always so judgmental or why do I feel – why is having a conversation with my business partner feel like the world is about to end right now? Like what is really behind all of these things? And a lot of it really starts with how were you raised when you were a kid? What were your parents like? What were some things that you went through? I never really dive into those issues before. I have a great relationship with my parents. Like my mom and dad and and I are, you know, we're we're close. We're very close. It almost surprises my friends sometimes how close I am because, well, I do live with them, but we're also like buddies. Like my mom and I, you know, we, we go see movies together. You know, I've had a very, very good, thankfully, a very good relationship with them. So heading into Hoffman, I was like, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Like I don't... I don't have any childhood trauma. I don't have any, you know, I'm not like, oh, you know, like I hate my parents. They're weird. They never pay for my things, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I didn't have any of those issues. But going through it for a week and, you know, connecting with others and really kind of understanding, oh, wow, you know, I I do always get annoyed when my mom asks me about these XYZ things in this XYZ way. And maybe that's why I always overreacted every time an ex-girlfriend would ask me about things like that, right? Mm. Because I was just channeling discussions that I would have had with my mom. Like That's an example mm-hmm. and a bit of a superficial one. But coming out of it, I have so much more mental clarity about me, who I am, what my values are. And I feel so much more at peace with where my life's journey is going and I don't feel like time is running out. And that's the biggest thing that I gained from it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you walked away with tools that you can use later in life? For sure. I think I'm going to – I walked away with tools like meditation, checking in with myself, centering myself, being more in the moment, things that I'm going to do the rest of my life. And then more importantly, I walked away with just friends and family that I'm going to know, like really cool people that I met out there that yeah. I never would have otherwise have met. That's so cool. Yeah. And look, it doesn't have to be Hoffman per se that that other folks can do. But I think just even just connecting with friends that 
you only do maybe superficial things with like dinners or go to see events or whatever concerts like just having a heart to heart with one of your closest friends and just mm-hmm. talking to them about real issues like what well why why is this bothering you what what is keeping you from doing this mm-hmm. just connecting with people in a really almost visceral way will and being vulnerable with others will definitely open up a lot of light and doors for you that's something that i took away like i'm so much better with my friends now like we and not, and not drinking helps too but you know i don't think anyone has to take those drastic measures if they don't want to but mm-hmm. Connecting with my friends on a whole new, different level now than I was before, and it's been great. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't get to use your phone there for a week. You don't. Do they? And they control your food too. I think they take your phone. Okay. And they do control your food, but the issue is they they actually should control it more because oh. you get like three meals a day, and this was in California too. So there's like ten different kinds of vegetables. Everything's like organic. <laughs> And it was all buffet style, and I just – I don't know. Do you have three meals a day? I don't know the last time I ever had three meals a day. Like I have like one and a half meals a day maybe. And That is not good. And like those meals are – like one is like a big meal from like Chipotle maybe, and then like another one is like a salad <laughs> because like I'm afraid to eat carbs. And <laughs> Okay, we need to work on this. And – I, I don't know. I feel like no one in New York eats three meals a day, right? Okay. You, you have like... I eat three meals a day. I don't know who you're talking to. I get hungry. <laughs> oh, trust me. I'm hungry all the time. But <laughs> that has nothing to do with whether or not I eat. But I, I, I was just unused to like sitting and having three proper meals a day. So I was joking around with my buddies. I was like, yeah. Because you're working through all these issues and they're asking you like, all right, well, what are you going to lose? What are you going to give away? The minute you leave and some people are like well i'm gonna give away being self-critical or i'm gonna give away being judgmental i'm gonna give away being being uh, self-defeating and i was like i'm gonna need to give away these hoffman five pounds that i gained eating all of this <laughs> kale and brussels sprouts and chicken and granola but they fed you very well there they nice. i mean the, the point is to not create any distractions right yeah. so it's you really want to be there working on yourself and yeah I mean, I think I'm going to do that in my real life now, too. Like, I used to be so – and part of this is I'm in entertainment, too, right? So you need to look a certain way or at least you think you need to look a certain way. But I used to get so worked up about little things like that. Like, what am I eating? Am I working out all the time when I should be? Like, what am I aware? I used to be so self-critical and now I'm realizing that why stress yourself out about a lot of those things? Like, as long as the keys are there and you're representing yourself in the way you want – there's no reason to kill yourself because you had a macaroon. So it seems like it's all about breaking cyclical habits. Yeah, because bad things become cycles just as easily as, if anything, way more easily than good things. So oftentimes you just have to – it's the mental cycles that really you – know, look, anyone can read a book about habits and kind of – we all know in our heads, right, the things that we should be doing. We mm-hmm. Humans are really unique in that regard, right? Like every human being can imagine the perfect version of themselves. Right. Like dogs and cats can't do that. I mean, they're already kind of the perfect version of themselves. Mm-hmm. They just do whatever That's they want. That's true. <laughs> they're the best. But imagine if like a dog could kind of sit there and like imagine like, oh, you know, maybe they do. Maybe that maybe that. And then they go out and, you know, take that nap or, mm-hmm. you know, catch that squirrel. But mm-hmm. I, I uh, you know, we're very unique in that regard. Right. And I think what ends up happening is once you do imagine what that perfect version of yourself is, If that's all that happened, I think that would be fine. But the issue is after that happens, you then start feeling guilt sometimes, criticism or angst or anxiousness. And that's like real. Like you actually start getting depressed about stuff that hasn't even happened yet or like nothing has happened. Like, you know, we're we're also the only organisms I think that can just sit in a room and feel sad Mm. without anything actually happening around you. So a lot of it is really just kind of controlling what goes on in, in the brain to the best extent that you can. And I think a lot of that just comes from knowing yourself and having others kind of reinforce those good things about yourself. Mm-hmm. I've been reading about it a little bit. And it's very – it's kind of – they kind of keep quiet what it is that they do over there in terms of, like, activities. But it seems mm-hmm. pretty intense. Did you ever want to leave? I heard that Jay Beebs left after two days. He did. He probably had a concert or something to do. Or maybe he just was over it. But I – I wanted to not leave necessarily, but I did question why I was there in the beginning because a lot of the folks I was with, you know, and and we do this to ourselves all the time. Like I would do this all the time as even a comedian. Like, you know, you see someone talk about some crazy stuff that's happened to them in their life and then you start thinking like, well, like, wow, like, you know, my parents stayed together the whole time and Mm. I never had to deal with like, 
you know, a, a drug habit or all some of these issues, like what's interesting about me then? Like, why would anyone want to care about my story? That's a lot of that happened there too, because some people are there because they're really dealing with issues that you feel like your bag just not big enough yeah i'm just like why am i here you know this okay. is like people are gonna laugh at me when i tell them like oh my god i'm here because i'm really nervous about my career did anyone actually make you feel like that no well one person did me that oh, <laughs> right okay. like that was it and you realize a not only were you so stupid for thinking those things but b you're there for completely different reasons and you realize that at the end like at the end i realized like oh my god like this had nothing to do with my career this had to do with like my entire approach to life mm-hmm. um you know why relationships went sour or you know even with my art and my comedy like now when i sit down to write jokes or when i think about things i want to talk about i'm just way less dismissive and it's opened up so many other pathways so i'm i'm happy i went through it and i, I just realized like how dangerous the human mind can even be sometimes you know like we the 37 of us were all there mm-hmm. in the same place of desperation like we were in the same place in the same station so to speak mm. But there were 100 million different trains that took us there, right? Mm-hmm. The human mind is so crazy in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, we were still all dealing with the same issues, despite the fact that we all had completely different life experiences. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, because I feel like with, um, and not that you're recovering from some kind of illness or something, but like, often in a recovery <laughs> process, yeah. what they do is insert structure into your life in these, like, recovery programs. Yeah. Which I think is the closest thing that I can liken Hoffman to. Yeah, that's accurate. It's, it's interesting because it feels less like they're putting structure into your life and more about, or maybe they are, I don't know, with like the way that you think about and the way that you see certain things in the world. Maybe it, it is about adding more structure to your thoughts. I Yeah, it's, it's definitely not one of those things where it's like army boot camp where they teach you like as long as you wake up at 8 a.m. every day and run 20 miles, you'll be fine. It's a little bit more along the lines of what, what's your approach to how you deal with problems and how you react. So some of it is helping you on, and I think this works for anybody. It's not, you don't have to go through hopping to do it, but it kind of breaks down into two things. It's why are you reacting that way? And then how should you be reacting, right? Mm -hmm. So the why focus is really on, there are probably just some patterns or things that trigger you that have been doing so since you were little, right? Like for me, you know, I, and also like the other thing is some some of the stuff makes you successful, like having a sense of urgency around deadlines and, oh my God, I have to do this or else like the whole world is going to collapse. Like that could make you like really, you can get promoted as CEO at some of these companies, like having that like razor sharp focus on always responding to every single email whenever it gets, whenever it gets like sent to you, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it is dialing back down and understanding, well, why am I like that? And what, what about my upbringing has made me like that? And then the second piece is, well, how do I react when stuff happens, right? It's not about just like putting a smile on your face or painting one on like the Joker and acting like everything's okay. No, obviously there are going to be times when you do need to address a crisis or address a situation or there are going to be real problems. A lot of it is just figuring out, okay, I am able to and I can pause, reflect and deal with this in a calm way because I'm confident with who I am and and where things are going. So it so, was, okay. it was, it was structured in, in the sense of like, how do you mentally structure your reactions to different things? I think it kind of seems to me that the structure kind of comes as like a side effect of the process. Mm-hmm. Cause it feels to me like it's more about uncovering truth. And once you do that, the effects of it don't necessarily wear off over time. Like it might with structure. Yeah. I, I think having the mental tools to deal with, triggers and situations like someone at work pisses you off or your significant other is always doing that one annoying thing that just may cripple your relationship or you're sitting alone and you're writing something and you're like oh my god this is garbage i'm garbage that stuff is going to happen regardless of where your life goes right whether you live in new york and then you move or whether you're living in a one bedroom you get married and now you're in a two bedroom it's it's more about understanding your life is always going to change and like what you do at 9 a.m next year is going to change but your mind and you ideally will be there and you can then deal with those situations as they change. I love that. I feel like you walked away with such a strong sense of self. So far, yeah. We'll see. Look, it's only been a few weeks. Yeah. But I am I'm just feeling refreshed and you know, I, I do think it's not like if I hadn't done this, you know, I would be completely miserable. I would have tried to find some other way to like get here because I knew Leaving Goldman, being by myself, I knew I was falling into a path of like, oh my God, I need to just get my head in the right space 
and I'm glad I took the time out to do it. So if, if any, if there's any one takeaway I have, and, and this I think gets to the core of kind of the Desi condition and, and the things that we've been conditioned not to do, taking time out for yourself in the right way is very important. And it's something that everyone should think about doing regardless of whether or not people are being dismissive about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I say the right way is like the original way I was doing it was just, you know, I was doing it in the bottle and partying as much as I could and doing stuff on the surface, but like going deep and really dealing with some, some big issues, mental issues, I think was key and I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, I hope you learned something. Me too. And you, even if you didn't, I hope it was interesting. <laughs> and I hope you laughed. Um, if you have any questions or comments or feedback or anything, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram and Facebook at The Desi Condition. Also, reach out to Anish on Instagram and Twitter at Mitra NYC, as well as The Surprise Show NYC on Instagram. If you are listening on a platform in which you can leave ratings and reviews, please consider doing so to help my name get out there on the map. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next time.